Welcome to So Many Bits. I'm your host, Bill Nielsen, and this week I'll be recapping my recent trip to PAX East 2020. I'll be featuring eight interviews I conducted with game devs while on the expo hall floor, with another seven coming next week. I'm also going to talk a little bit about my time at PAX and just a few of the different things you can attend while you're there. Of course, for a hot minute, it wasn't even clear that PAX was going to go on due to concerns about the coronavirus. While we're still only beginning to grapple with the spread of the illness throughout the United States, Sony took the precautionary measure of fully removing themselves from PAX in order to prevent the spread from Japanese employees flying in. It seems like that might be the first domino to fall in a series of departures from the event, and in fact that seems to have been the cause of the cancellation of GDC only a week later, when numerous companies decided they would not be sending their workers to the festival in San Francisco. For better or for worse though, I was privileged enough that the events continued on unabated, but with a few extra conditions. All around the BCEC, you could see workers hurriedly spraying down and wiping down surfaces with disinfectant and other treatments. I even ran into a few employees whose sole purpose seemed to be wiping down the handrail on on escalators continuously, and as for attendees, we had to be more mindful about how we were spreading germs ourselves. I grappled with a few different greetings throughout the weekend where I might give a thumbs up, I might tap elbows, And in a few cases, yes, I did shake hands, even though we were not supposed to. I believe I may have frustrated one person with my attempt to shake hands, and I do apologize. Starting off, we've got three interviews from when I first hit the floor at PAX. First, we've got Eric Johnson. He's a production manager over at Vertigo Gaming, and they were working on Cook, Serve, Delicious 3. Next, I've got Hugo Vaz, a 2D slash 3D artist for Behold Studios, and their title was Out of Space. And lastly, I have Andrew Brophy, the lead designer behind Knuckle Sandwich. Cook, serve, delicious. Cook, serve, delicious, two. Cook, serve, delicious, three. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining me to talk about this game. Thanks so much for having me, man. Yeah, so, I mean, we were just trying it out. One of the things you mentioned is that for this iteration, you wanted to have different pacing to the way that you prepare orders and then give them out compared to the first two. Right. It was important for us to maintain the state the same mechanics from one and two have that familiarity for the players who had played our game who are hardcore cook serve delicious one and two and or two players but we didn't really see the point of making the third game unless it had some marked differences from the first two so it all kind of coalesced with the idea of the food truck sort of road trip across this alternate reality post-apocalyptic america which all of that was sort of teased in the second game, but you didn't have to interact with any of that lore. But in three, we bring that out, and it all kind of fit with the idea of this new progression of hitting stops and having to serve different stops on a a route of three to five stops of anywhere between 10 and 50 customers each versus just a trickle down of customers during non-rush hours and then the damn breaks during rush hours, and you have to deal with that. That was CSD 1 and 2. So... It was really about finding that different progression of gameplay using the same mechanics that we had already uh, established in 1 and 2. 
with the post-apocalyptic storyline, with the food truck, with the uh, the robot servers working with you, I mean, was that always the plan, or was it like kind of an Easter egg at first in the earlier game, and then it's like, hey, actually, maybe we could do something with it. You nailed it on the head right there. I don't think a lot of this, when we were making two, and our writers were putting those emails together with all that lore in, involved, mentioning the... You know, the robot-only Blue War, things of that sort. You know, it was very Easter egg-ish at the time, right? It wasn't something that we were thinking, okay, now we can take that and transform it. When we came up with Cook, Serve, Delicious 3, David Galindo, the creator, said, let's really lean into what we have here with the lore and bring that to the forefront. And it, and again, it all just kind of coalesced because one of the issues with CSD2 was it kind of lacked the progression of a campaign or the, or the campaign progress that you could make in one. It wasn't the same kind of progress. So uh, it wasn't the same kind of fulfilling campaign that you had in one. So we wanted to make that right in three. And it, and, and it just it just made complete sense. It makes it, it's, it's so natural to have a campaign that's a road trip. You know, it just, you go place to place, you deal with different menus in different areas, and you're not just stuck in a building like you were in one and two. You're really hitting the road in this one, and, and it just lends itself to what we're doing. But are there, like, different events that you can encounter while on the road? Yeah, so there are some some twists and turns. We have rival food trucks that will you'll encounter that they can shoot out your tires. They can uh, change your route, force you to change routes, and start a new kind of menu, or not a new menu, but a new order selection that you thought was going one way or the other. There's one, they can shoot at one of your holding stations, and so that can be malfunctioning for the rest of the level. We're, we're kinda, we we kind of let you know, and that, on this level, you may encounter some turbulence kind of stuff. So you also, we're still in early access, so we're playing with, different, with some ideas as we close out the game over the next couple months here and get ready for 1.0 release. Some places in America are, are irradiated at this point, so we're playing with the idea of, of does that have any mechanical effect on the game or or like fallout style like where you have to actually deal with radiation poisoning and things of that sort but it's not going to be anything like that it would just be how does this work within the context of the mechanics and and is there any way that we can work that in probably not serving man at any point right in the in the service sense but not the the service sense i understand what you're saying absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah. it's not post-apocalyptic in the sense that we don't have good foods to choose from and stuff like that's the one thing that we maintained was or the conceit is, even if it's post-apocalyptic, people still want their foie gras or their, uh, you know, really delicious, high-quality meals. And everyone goes, oh, it's out of a food truck? And and that maybe 10 years ago would fly, but food trucks have had this advent over the last 10 years. You can get almost any delicious cuisine from a food truck now, especially if you're in those areas that they're very popular and stuff. So it's not just getting a taco anymore or whatever, you know. Like, there are so many different flavors and options especially if you go to some of these big cities and uh we ripped off that i mean we really were we were thinking about that and that in the international cuisine bringing in a lot of foods that we barely knew anything about we wanted to bring those to the table as well and kind of expose our audience to like more foods than maybe they'd ever imagined yeah where do you source those foods from do you have like just cookbooks or do you how do you do that sure i mean a lot of this is just players fan suggestion right oh i'm from uh this country would you consider including this specific you know kind of country staple or meal that um we may or may not have heard of before honestly like some of them are so uh you know we just I've had so little interaction with that country, you know, through my studies or whatever, that 
you go, oh my gosh, what is it? What even is this at first? And then you realize it's one of your favorite, it might be one of your favorite foods to make in the game and or actually make in real life. We have, I'd say like a handful of people over the last couple of months that have posted pictures of new foods that they've made that they found out from the game, which is just kind of a cool, random, rewarding thing that, that comes out of this game, among a lot of other random, rewarding things. There is one dish I wanted to ask about in particular. I'm wearing a, a giant bomb hoodie right now. I was wondering, uh, will the Ryan Davis be in the game at some point? The Ryan Davis is already included from this from the go, just like it was in CSD2. Um, it's a it's the standard burgers, two pieces of cheese, uh, and the tomatoes on top. So yeah, Ryan Davis is already in there. The late great Ryan Davis gave David Galindo, in, uh, the creator I mentioned before, cooks are delicious. Sort of his first break. This team that and this booth and all that might not be here if Ryan Davis did not cover Cookster Delicious One the way he did when he did uh, six, seven, eight years ago now was a big kind of touchstone moment, hallmark moment for this series. So, yeah, he'll always have a special place in our hearts and will always be kind of included. We're glad to have him included and kind of uh, cemented in the game like that. Eric, glad to hear that. Thank you. And uh, there, there is one more question I have for you. Sure. Uh, so I feel like there's a common touchstone among all video game players regarding Pokemon, whether with the anime or with Pokemon Go or with the Game Boy games. So with that in mind, if there is one Pokemon you could either eat or a byproduct of a Pokemon that you could eat, what would it be? Wow. Gosh, I, I mean, I used to be a carnivore, so like Charizard comes to mind. Now that I'm in my 30s, it seems like a plant-based Pokemon, like Bulbasaur or something, would be like a better option. Right. This is a crazy question, <laughs> Bill. <laughs> I'm trying to assume that there's a humane way to harvest a Bulbasaur's leaves where it's sustainable and ethical. So we're not actually killing the uh, the animal. We don't with... have to. Okay. I mean, certain people, you know, they have different. Some people will eat meat. Some people will eat Pokemon. But because it feels like, like the Charizard, you're gonna have to just take take a piece of the tail there, you know, or something like that yeah. to get started. But yeah, yeah, I like that. I like. That. I have no idea. I, I when you asked, I my I, just, I went through my Pokédex in my head, all these different <laughs> ones. I'm like probably none of the cute ones. You know what I mean? Right. Like that made me feel bad. But like you said, maybe we're not killing them. So. Right. Well, Eric, thank you so much. If people want to get updates on the game and on the team in general, where can they get them? Follow us on Discord, on our Discord. You can find us on cookservedelicious.com. David, the creator, is on Twitter at at Chubbigans. I am on Twitter as well, at Game Connoisseur. You can find us on there. Uh, we'll be retweeting and posting. But if you want to be you know, kind of heavily into the updates, follow us either on Steam, uh, cookservedelicious3 on Steam, or on our Discord. We are always active on our Discord. We have a very good community on there and you kind of get the real-time updates from us on there versus some of the other places. Awesome, thank you very much. Awesome, thanks, Bill. more science fiction than four roommates cooperating and doing all the chores and buying things collectively. I was just stopping by Behold Studios' new game, Out of Space, and I'm talking with Hugo Voss. Hugo is the artist on the game. Hugo, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for playing. It's my pleasure because, you know, I've, I've kept an eye on your previous work with uh, Knights of Pen and Paper and Chroma Squad, and this is a, a bit of a departure for your team, and you were talking to me a little bit earlier about that. Well, uh, as Behold Studios always want to make improvements in our 
abilities in our way to make games. And in this case, we are moving to a cooperative multiplayer game made in 3D, almost totally different from our previous games. But I guess our true spirit and our way to make things funny is still in this newer title. In outer space, you have to live with your friends in a space home and you need to cooperate to do not starve or do not get too tired from sweeping the floor, basically. So that's this kind of humor that we always want to put in the games. There's some good advice. Make sure to rest yourself. Make sure to eat. Make sure to clean yourself. Well, you know, good things for the game or just for day-to-day -day operation. <laughs> yes, because it's everything is inspired in real life. So uh, while you are playing the game, you actually feel that uh, connection to the real world and the things you you need that need to be done in your home, and uh, the way you remind of about living with someone. All these things are inspiration for us to build this game. Now, for you personally, since you are working with a, a new type of art, did you have to adapt to using different tools? Did your process change at all for this game? Yeah, of course. Uh, as moving from pixel art to 3D, of course, we have these 3D softwares. And in the company, we use, for example, game jams to uh, learn a new tool, test new things. And after a while, actually... Uh, We are being, we've been studying uh, 3D for a while, and in this in this game we felt that we had the uh, the confidence enough to uh, make a commercial game uh, 3D. I got to demo the game right now, and I saw a few of the different things that can pop up that are challenges. Is there one for you that was like the funniest or the strangest that you could come across in the game? I find it funny how people makes conclusions about the, 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 the things. For example, um, it's in space, and if, if a friend gets too uh, dirty, he becomes a cocoon, and he gets stuck and cannot do anything, and needs to, the other friends to get him out from the cocoon. And the players often get uh, unusual solutions for that. For example... Uh, recycling its its friend or throwing it in space. So these kind of things are always a joy to, to watch. Hugo, there's one question I ask. There was one Pokemon you could have as a pet. What Pokemon would that be? Oh my god. I guess Aaron. I like uh, all its evolutions and I like the idea of the metal dinosaur thing. So I, I, will, I will have Aaron. As, I'm, as my pet. Awesome. Now, just uh, before we go, uh, if people want to get updates on Out of Space and whatever Behold is working on, where can they get them? Behold Studios is in every uh, social media. So we are in Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, also, we have a Discord channel. It's, a, it's a, maybe a must for those who want to know about our process, about our newest projects that will be going... Hey, for, for those who want to make close contact for us, go for this, the Discord channel. To those who want to uh, uh, know about uh, the things we are do doing, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. Thank you very much.
Now this is going to be the first time I've ever accepted a knuckle sandwich willingly. You know, sometimes, you know, when you were a kid, you get asked and say like yes or no. You get punched either way, of course. But uh, I'm here right now with Andrew Brophy. He is the pioneer of his new game, Knuckle Sandwich. Uh, he's got to demo it, and it is uh, coming soon. So, Andrew, thank you so much for your time, first of all. Yeah, that's okay. I'm glad to be here. One thing that leaps out immediately with this game is that playing it and seeing some video of uh, places I didn't get to, there's a variety of graphic styles at work here. Did you have to kind of brainstorm different art that you wanted to use for different situations, or did they come across just like uh, organically as the different scenarios came up? I feel, just with the whole game, I feel more like the gardener kind of approach to making it. Like, it just kind of happens, then I kind of tame it back and cut it down, because there's all these different styles, and so much of it I had to refine. So I just kind of throw out every style I can think of, and then as I kind of work on it and actually put it on the game, I will rein it back in a bit. What? Yeah. Because there are a lot of different styles in the game, and I'm going to quote your uh, Kickstarter page on one element here. I wanted to create an RPG that doesn't feature the things I dislike about the genre. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about like what you may dislike about the genre? So, I mean, a huge one I think a lot of people could agree upon is grinding. I just don't like it, right? Or like even just battles in general that take too long. Because like at the end of the day, it's a menu, right? So with this, there's obviously still a menu, but you're actually doing something. And I think it's great that there's so many games, like indie games especially, that have come out that have you actually doing something in RPGs. But I just kind of want to push that even further by having it like battles are pretty much optional outside of bosses. Like you don't really need to grind to actually be good or be in the game. Were there any games in particular that inspired your approach to the, this RPG? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorite uh, RPGs is like the Mario and Luigi series, particularly Superstar Saga. I mean, it's just an incredible game. I think it's perfect. And I'm really into Pokemon, particularly like competitive uh, like double battles. So that's kind of like part of it that went in there. And obviously the, the micro games, that's WarioWare to a T, I think. Even especially like separating and making them a bit abstract. So they're the, they're the big three as far as games go. And uh, with regards to the humor, are you drawing on any particular like experiences in your own life? It felt like there was a bit of a solidarity with a working person going on there. I mean, the initial kind of concept was based on when I was like 18 and I moved out of home looking for a job. And the first one I got was at a really bad restaurant. So, you know, like that's kind of like the initial pitch. Obviously, everything else that happens is a bit fake, so to speak, <laughs> but, you know, without spoiling it. But yeah, that was, it was that kind of inspiration. Obviously, like I feel making light of something that is so relatable is kind of, it's approachable, right? Even though it's, it's really absurd and surreal, you can kind of still get the mentality of what's going through the character's mind, you know? When you have the character receive a phone call on the landline, has anyone, I just, I'm just i wondering if there's still a reference for that, have, have people been, has anyone said like, hey, what is that? I don't think people are that young yet, or maybe it's my, my player base so far. I can't wait though for something like that to happen. I'm, I'm keen for it now. <laughs> I feel like maybe you're right, yeah, there's still like a, people keep pulling on it in popular media, like even with like VHS tapes and stuff. It, yeah. You're probably right. Like even like the save icon, right? Like it's still a floppy disk. Yes, that, that's right. Yeah, even if you're like, oh, that's the hashtag symbol on my phone. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I do have one other question I want to ask, and fittingly, it is about Pokemon. And uh, I swear I asked this to other people. This is not okay. the first time I've asked this. Okay. If there was one Pokemon you could eat, or alternatively, if there is one Pokemon you could eat like a byproduct of, what would that be? If I could eat. Or do you say meat? Uh, eat. I would say both meat and eat would be vanilla because it's my favorite. But that feels like easy because it's an ice cream. <laughs> I would think like, it'd be like, I'd want to see something like 
get like golem because it's like a rock. Like, what does it look like on the inside, right? I don't eat meat, but that'd be kind of gross and weird to see. We, two picks. <laughs> I was going to say, we know that like Pokemon can digest organic material because in the new generation, they all can eat the curry. So there's got to be something going on on the inside there. I want to see like the, one of the really unnatural, like ones that don't look like animals. What do they look like in there? That'd be creepy. <laughs> Just dissect them. Awesome. Uh, if people want to keep getting updates on the game, uh, where can they get them? And is there generally a time where people can expect to see the game released? So we're looking to try and release this year. We haven't got a set time yet, but when it's done, um, the website's knucklesandwich.biz, and we're also on Steam for people to wishlist. So. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast, of course, you know I ask that question about eating a Pokemon all the time. But it just so happens in Andrew's game, Knuckle Sandwich, one of the plot points in the demo is you beat a person up and then they are turned into hamburgers. So it just felt too perfect to ask that question for Andrew right there. And I want to just try and emphasize this is a thing I normally ask people. That makes me a different kind of strange than the strange he might have thought. Leading up to these interviews, and well, for every day I was at PAX, I had to wait to enter the Expo Hall, as did hundreds, if not thousands of other people. There is a queue room that you go through after you go through a bag check, and each of those, depending on the time of day, can take an hour or hours to go through. I felt really bad for people who waited for the Expo Hall to open for hours, then walked over to the Nintendo booth, then waited for hours more to get merch or to demo the new Animal Crossing game because it just didn't feel like a terribly efficient use of time at an event such as PAX where there's so many fun things to do. I don't want to police people's time, but I will say with most of the popular games that drive the huge traffic, there will be demos available, such as with the Final Fantasy VII Remake where a demo was available the day after PAX East ended, or they'll be available on retail shelves in healthy supply, and many of the people going to demo the game are just looking for a sneak peek anyway. So with that in mind, my general advice for PAX or for other conventions is to not wait wherever possible. Now, waiting to get into the hall, that's inevitable. That's something that's just the cost of doing business. Waiting to see a live event, such as, for example, Acquisitions Inc. at PAX, I can empathize with that because you're seeing a unique entertainment experience that you can't find anywhere else. But as for games, I would really, really encourage people to check out the Indie Mega Booth or just other miscellaneous booths throughout the hall with independent game developers who are trying to show off their brand new product. More likely than not, you're going to meet someone who made the game and is now showing you the thing they have made, which is a very personal experience. And I would rank that much more highly than getting to see a well-meaning Nintendo employee walk you through an Animal Crossing demo or a well-meaning Square employee walk you through the demo to Final Fantasy VII Remake. But I think that's enough waiting for right now. That is, waiting for the next interviews. So with that all said, let's move on to talking with J.C. Salinas, the lead designer behind a dual-hand disaster tracker, Bennett Tyler, one of the co-founders of Bomb Shelter Games and his team's game Depths of Sanity, and Jorge Garcia, a co-founder of NECA Studios and their team's game Neon City Riders.
Well, there are uh, plenty of cooperative games. There are plenty of games even on the Switch you can play with uh, two people on one controller. But this is a two-character game that you play with one person. Here with uh, JC Salinas. Uh, he's from Ask an Enemy Studios. He's a creative director there. Yeah, uh, so just, I guess, first of all, what inspired this game's premise? I have to know. So the game of Dual Hand Disaster Tracker was... Uh, basically inspired by uh, Brothers. You ever play Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons? Okay, so in that game you're controlling your brother with each stick. It's really cool because it kind of scratches a part of your brain that's never been scratched before. Uh, the thing is, in Brothers, um, like with one brother you're kind of pulling a log, with the other brother you're kind of like climbing up a ladder or whatever. It's really cool. The thing is, when they cross the center of the screen, you kind of lose focus on who you're controlling. And to me, that was kind of frustrating when you're in the middle of a puzzle. Uh, so, But I really like the idea of controlling two things at once. So my solution, quote-unquote, to that was basically just split the screen in half, give you two distinct things to do, and then start to just piece it together from there and figure out how to still connect both sides to do, like, things that relate to each other, right? Yeah, because I've played a couple games where they're just kind of split-screen thing, but they're entirely independent, or you do one or the other. In Tracker, you basically do both at the same time. It just depends on how you can shift your attention. And I guess just to get my timeline straight, sure. uh, you, you've mentioned that you did not have programming experience prior to working on the game. Is right. that correct? Yes. So I basically, I thought, when I started making a game, I thought going to school is the proper way to do it. So like I tried to do game design school, and it was a complete waste of time. So I just, I dropped out after about a year, year and a half. And um, they didn't teach me a thing about game design, like, you know, Unity or Maya or any anything that you think would make sense to make a video game. So I just, I taught myself, the first engine I taught myself was Game Maker. But Sony didn't support Game Maker at the time, so when I got PlayStation Vita dev kits, I had to learn Unity, so I had to learn something completely new again. But the neat thing with that was that, at least with Unity, it's like you're learning C Sharp. So, like, you're learning an actual language to code in. So I thought that would be pretty cool, so I went that route. Uh, and just taught myself that by reading books, watching YouTube videos. Unity itself has really good like tutorials on their website that are like fairly easy to follow. You just have to have the mindset of like, I want to learn to do this. You know, I want to make a game. And I think that's the overall driving force this whole time is I wanted to see something complete from finish to end. I mean, from beginning to end. Imagine if the uh, the dean of uh, video game university called you and said, "JC, I need you to teach video games 101." What would your syllabus be? So the interesting thing about that is, I, I've always thought of myself as like someone who learns easy, but I I don't know how to teach someone what I've learned. You know what I mean? But if I had to, just based on what I wanted to learn, I would just be like, I don't know, maybe I would teach students unity like the interface first and foremost right because that that's how i work as a musician when i learn software i just learn what buttons do and then i'll start to create something you know what i mean or in, in the terms of music like I'll, I'll play the instruments myself also but the idea is learning the software to capture what your vision is that's the first that's that barrier to entry right there first and foremost you know uh everything else just kind of falls in place but just takes dedication and time and stuff yeah 100 percent did you compose this game's music yourself then? Yeah, yeah. So as a musician, um, that to me was more like second nature. It was really easy for me to just kind of bust out something real quick and then uh, just put it in the game or whatever. The hard part was putting it in the game, you know what I mean? Yeah. But the writing of the music, like, it's like I've always said, my qual the quality of the music is subjective, but you can't deny that I could write a jam. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you could criticize it all you want, but I could write a jam, you know? Previously, if people told you you can't write a jam, I would be... <laughs> I, that, would, that would add to maybe, like, the surprise of, like, how the f- did you do this kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, no, believe me, man, I, I've been... I've been surprised at myself at what I've been able to do as well. But it's like when I try to tell people that like I did it without any experience whatsoever, it's just a vision I had in my head that I wanted to see on screen. You know, like there are videos on my website that show what the game looked like before I put it into Unity. And you'll see it's like, it looks terrible. But you'll see the progress of the videos and and how the game has changed over time, you know? Uh, So then I just have uh, one last question for you. If there is one Pokemon you could have as a pet, what Pokemon would that be? So that's a funny question because I honestly, I don't play Pokemon. I know about it, obviously, because gaming stuff. But I really actually have had this connection to always seeing, I guess it's a Pokemon called Snorlax. Yeah. yeah. There's just something about his cute little fucking face that, dude, I guess it kind of reminds me of my cat. Like, it's just a little (laughs) tiny beast that is just, like, hanging out. You know, Snorlax has definitely been something I've always known about. Oh, that's that's yeah. actually kind of funny because, like, yeah, that's how that, you, you're thinking of the right one, but like right. in the in the game universe, Snorlax is huge. Really, it's like bigger than us. It's like, it's like eight feet wide. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because I've I've only ever seen like little plushies of him or like little pins of him. You know, right, so, yeah, I've, so I like never watched scary, the cartoon yeah. or whatever. So or the sorry, I don't know if I offended people. The yeah. anime or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've only ever seen, yeah, I guess the small version. I never knew he was a big-ass monster. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you very much. Is there a place that people can keep up to date on updates for the game? Yeah, sure. So the best way is the Discord, which is discord.gg slash Studios. We're active in there all the time. I've got friends in there who are playing the game. Uh, I'm the only developer on the game, but I've got a friend, Blaze, who's a moderator. Uh, that's kind of the best way to stay in contact and follow up on stuff. But you could also just go to askanenemystudios.com or Twitter, askanenemy. Yeah. No problem, man. Thank you. Here I am talking with Bennett Tyler, the founder of Bob Shelter Games, and his team's work is Depths of Sanity. So you describe yourself and your team as just gamers making games. Can you tell me a little bit about that philosophy? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, we started this studio 10 years ago, and uh, it's just something we do in our free time. We're all childhood friends. In fact, two of uh, the developers literally grew up across the street from each other. We, um, we play games all the time. Actually, every we meet twice a week digitally. One to work on the game and one to play games another time a week. So really, it's just kind of a passion project for us. And uh, that's the reason why we're making the game we're making, which is a Metroidvania-style game. We all have uh, our own favorite Metroidvania that we like to play, and we're all kind of bringing that influence into this game while we make it. What inspired the underwater setting? Was that like someone's inspiration specifically or just like a team idea? That was a team idea that I will fully admit came out of the fact that we haven't really seen that done yet. We were kind of looking for, you know, a way to make a unique Metroidvania that we hadn't played yet. And um, Underwater was something that, like, we've seen, like, elements of it. Uh, Song of the Deep is a, uh, is a Metroid 
Castlevania-ish game that is all underwater submarine driven, but this is a little more traditional, combat oriented. But we wanted to make something that wasn't just about jumping around, which is what Metroidvania is usually like, it's vertical uh, vertical gates, right? You gotta jump higher, you gotta get double jump or something like that. So we wanted to move away from that and kind of try something new. And uh, that's where we came up with 360s, three, like 3D movement. And then from there, underwater made a lot of sense. One other way it seems like you're diverging is there's a bit of a horror element to the gameplay. I found the anglerfish. That wasn't, I mean, it was fun, but also not fun, if you get what I'm saying. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, that is another kind of, like, opportunity afforded to us being underwater is the, the ocean's scary. There's, like, 95% of it's uncharted, right? And it's, it's just dark down there. So we really leaned into that with a lot of uh, the sections of the game. There are some some pitch black sections where uh, we throw some jump scares at you. It's, uh, we like to think of it more of like thriller or horror tinged rather than like straight, it's not survival horror in any way. There won't be any like resource management or stuff like that. Um, but we will throw, we'll throw a couple of scares at you from the, uh, from the darkness and the deep. Now, uh, Bennett, to diverge a little bit, there is one question I like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast. So uh, if there was one Pokemon you could be, what Pokemon would it be? Charmander. You knew that. You were you were ready. Yes, absolutely. My first AOL screen name ever was Pokemaniac Four. Four because Charmander's number is four. Uh, we have now that is not. I can't speak for the team here. In fact, um, one of the main devs is a die-hard Bulbasaur truther. Uh, so so this is not. I can't speak for all Bomb Shelter games, but absolutely Charmander without a question. Um, and also. Hit that B button, and I'm never evolving. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Uh, where can people get updates on the game, and where can they expect to find it when it's ready? Yeah, um, so we are uh, we currently have a Steam page right now, and the best way to keep track of us is to jump on our Steam page, throw us on your wish list. It helps us out, and you'll know when the game comes out. We, you can also follow us on Twitter, at uh, bomb underscore shelter, um, and that's where you're going to get some of the more like day-to-day updates. You'll see some of our depth blogs and kind of behind the scenes there, and those are the two best ways to, to kind of get a feel for what we're doing. And when the game comes out, we're really pushing for summer 2020, and uh, that will be for Steam and for the Nintendo Switch, and uh, sometime later this year for PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Awesome. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for coming by. Hey, did you ever watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles growing up? Yeah, of course. Yeah, all the time, man. Because I always imagined that I could be Casey Jones because he was the cool human guy who got to hang out with the turtles. Right. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, our main character is kind of based on Casey Jones, you know? Jorge, uh, his team, Mecha Studios, they're working on a game, Neon City Riders, and their, their main character does appear to resemble Casey Jones, legally distinct, but what can you tell me about th- their story? Well, uh, the main character is called Rick. He's like this masked vigilante that is fed up with all the injustice that is going on in Neon City. Uh, this city is a post-cyberpunk uh, decaying city, you know? It used to be like a pinnacle of technology, but 
some uh, something happened. It's it's explained in the story, and then it goes down, and and it's now like total chaos. So uh, a lot of people started to appear with some super uh, powers, with super abilities, and four of them, the most powerful, they took over the place and they divided it in, into four torps, and they created like these four uh, gangs, super power gangs, right? And they are like causing riots and disturbs and mayhem and stuff. So in the game, you take the role of Rick that. You need to travel around these four doors uh, to defeat these uh, bosses and unify against them. With the abilities that I saw in the demo, you got four of them. Right. Would you normally get them all up front like that, or would they be uh, given out a little more slowly in the in the main game? Yeah, they are given more uh, slowly. I mean, you need like to explore a lot of the game. It's based on exploration. Uh, I believe the the best part of it is that it's like uh, open ended. You can explore the whole four turps if you want. Uh, you have no like restrictions or order, a specific order. And uh, when you are exploring, you, you can like open new uh, sub areas and stuff, and you can get these abilities in which one in each four, uh, turp. What's interesting to me about the combat, from what I saw, is you know you it, you know you're a dude Rick who beats people up. He, he whacks them with the pipe. It looks like, right. but there's lots of. Uh, visual clues as to attack patterns and stuff kind of reminded me of like a shooter or a bullet hell kind of game oh nice yeah uh, we wanted to to make like uh, a funny combat you know like so something like fun action i mean a lot of people compare our game with beat em ups and we wanted to distinguish it from from a beat it up from action adventure you know so the combat we we try to to make it like okay it, it's hard but if you know how to read your enemy it's pretty easy you know it, it, you can't like just go ahead and try to kill everything with the pipe because you are going to get kicked out, right? So yeah, a lot of fidgets like reading the enemy. So that's why we have like a lot of visual cues. You had mentioned when we were talking earlier that this is a, a big opportunity to display the game, to demo it uh, here, and you partnered with Romeo to do that. Right. Uh, how did you? Uh, how did you or companies get together on that? Well, uh, we know them from a long time ago. I mean, we are pretty fans of what they did, like Battlebox and stuff. So we were like in touch since the beginning of our studio. And as soon as we were uh, almost finished with the game, they come nearby and tell us, guys, we love Neon City Riders. We would like to publish it. We want to start publishing games. And we believe Neon City Riders is a pretty cool opportunity. So we said, of course, I mean, we love what you guys are doing. We respect you not only as publishers, but as developers and we're in and since then we have been working together we have been like uh, trying to improve some stuff keep making more uh, external QA and, and stuff and finally we finish it we're going to launch it on March 12th so it's pretty oh, it's yeah it's only what two weeks maybe right yeah yeah, yeah. finally man finally <laughs> how long has it been in progress three years three years yeah well congrats uh, thank I mean, you I'm sure there's still a little more work that has to be done before it officially goes live but congrats on almost being done. Thank you very much, man. Yeah, it's been pretty rough, but we're almost there. So I do have one uh, last question here. Uh, this is a question about Pokemon. If you could be any Pokemon, which Pokemon would you be? I'm not sure if Psyduck or Squirtle, man. Those guys are my favorite. Yeah, I, I really dig them. I, I believe Squirtle. Okay, I think Squirtle's pretty cool, too. Like, it seems like when you play Smash Brothers, Squirtle, like, he moves pretty fast, and he can dig water, so that's pretty awesome. Right. Yeah, and also it's like a safe bet uh, first generation, right? Like a, a safe bet for starters. 
Uh, well, that's perfect. Then, uh, with that in mind, where can people get updates on Neon City Riders? We're at all social networks with Mecha Studios, www.mechastudios.com or neoncityriders.com also. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. While you're walking the expo hall floor, it can be a bit of sensory overload. You get to a booth and you see big gaudy screens and people trying to demand your attention only for five feet to the left, someone trying to grab your attention, five feet to your right, someone trying to grab your attention while meanwhile, booming over the general sound of the floor, you'll hear a shoutcaster talking about a game in the past few years. It's been Brawlhalla. Uh, And it can be easy to get overwhelmed. It's honestly a lot to take in even for me now having been there at PAX several years in a row and been to other conventions and then plus you factor in the people who are moving around you at all times it can be really good to have an itinerary for things you want to do while you're on the floor using the expo hall map a couple other tips which are repeated ad nauseum on r slash packs make sure to bring some water not soda but water something that will hydrate you because it's very easy to be walking around carrying a 15 to 20 pound backpack while wearing your jacket and probably eating something salty along the way and get dehydrated make sure to bring a portable battery it's really easy to run out of juice for your phone because you may have it out more than normal while you're trying to Check in on people on your Discord or call or look things up on the internet so you'll be surprised how quickly your phone will drain out. And extra, especially essential this year, but useful every year, is hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer isn't perfect. You should generally be washing your hands more than relying on hand sanitizer, but it still is very helpful. And I went through about two-thirds of a bottle throughout the weekend, and at certain points my My skin on the back of my hands felt like construction paper was so dried out from using the sanitizer and washing with uh, water and soap so many times. Water, portable battery, hand sanitizer. Those are the three things I would recommend the most while you're walking around on the floor. And the final two interviews that I would recommend are both on the surface similar in that they are shooter games set in space, but otherwise about as different as can be. First up, I talked to Francesca Carlton-Leon, the producer slash biz dev slash narrative designer for Contigo Games about her team's game, Starcrossed, plus got a bonus discussion about the two other games she has going on the Expo Hall floor, and then Taylor Miller, one of the co-founders of Team D13 and their game, Monolith. So just uh, compare it to making a game that controls with a couch. Starcross, just generally speaking, is uh, easier to manage, I'm guessing? Yeah, it's definitely a little more orthodox where it's like, you know, built with Unity. We're playing with controllers. Um, My work with alternative controllers has definitely been a more recent exploration of like experimental gameplay. But I really love it. I'm looking forward to doing another like weird project with it. Last time I saw Francesca, she was working on a... Hell Couch, that was back at Bitbash 2019 at MSI in Chicago, and 
that you had to use your your bottom, your 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 butt to uh, control the game. But now we're talking about Starcrossed. It's a cooperative arcade-style shooter with uh, visual novel elements as well. And you were telling me a little bit about how the uh, key mechanic to the game, where you are bouncing the star back and forth between both players, came to be a little earlier. Yeah, so we actually initially prototyped this mechanic at um, a game jam. So we really, we were actually doing a three-hour game jam, so it was very, very short. And we really just prototyped this one basic mechanic of passing a projectile back and forth instead of shooting one as you would normally do in an arcade shooter game. And we just found as we playtested it and as we showed it to people, it was very appealing and people liked having to coordinate and work with a partner. So we sort of built this entire game around that one mechanic, around these themes of cooperation and togetherness and just teamwork in general. And what was nice about it is, like, at the basic level, level one, I was like, okay, we're about, like, you and I have played the game. So we were bouncing the star back and forth. It's like, all right, this is nice. But then there's, like, room to, like, improve and do, like, the skill shots where you're timing your button press with when the star arrives and then, like, also managing to hit multiple enemies at once. There's, like, a lot of room for... Uh, people to just jump in but also to grow with the game definitely there's a lot going on on the screen at one time and i think a goal for us in terms of gameplay design was that we wanted anyone to be able to jump in and quickly pick up that core mechanic yeah but as you said we have this uh, star boosting mechanic which requires a bit more timing it requires a bit more coordination with your partner and doing so you can charge up an ultimate ability and also get more points so for the high score chasers and people who want to get competitive about their gameplay we also have space for that and on top of just this intense arcade game there's also elements where there are different characters you meet throughout the story and pairing them together can lead to uh, different narrative outcomes yeah, so we have a yeah both that arcade mode and also the story mode. So story mode has you meeting like a cast of secondary characters as you journey through the Nova Galaxy and save the universe. And as you play, so you get to select which pair of characters you want to use for your gameplay session. And depending on the different characters that you choose, you have different dialogues between them. So you can sort of see their relationship grow as they find out more about each other, about themselves, about the universe. Yeah, but we also have some additional scenes that you actually get to see that are particular to certain characters. So it's been really fun to have people discover those extra scenes and get an extra glimpse into like the background or lore of the character, I guess. I get the impression from having talked with other indie devs that like it's sort of an all-hands-on-deck thing, but you have three different titles within Contigo Games. You, so you are the producer, the, the biz dev, and the narrative designer, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And I actually like omitted some of the other things that I do. So I also have done some of the 3D art that's within the game. I also am sort of our like internal QA department. So you're definitely right. We wear lots of different hats. We're a small team of five people. And then we also have some audio contractors that we worked with. So we're a small team that is like spread out. We work remotely as well. So it's been a tremendous challenge to really work together, find out how to, you know, be be collaborative, right? Also work together and ship a game. And this isn't even your only game that's on the PAX Expo Hall floor. You've got two more games going on this weekend. Yeah, calling me out for doing too many things. <laughs> no, well, you know, I mean, so there's good health and like being focused on stuff but also it is cool that you have three games on the PAX floor. Thank you I appreciate that. Yes I'm also working on a project called We Should Talk uh, which takes place in a bar and it's about um, conversation. So you're navigating these different conversations uh, with your partner 
with strangers at the bar um, and discussing different topics as you explore your relationship further. And the, the, we built this game around um, a conversation mechanic that we think is really unique and really engaging for players. Instead of sort of choosing different dialogue options, you have a modular sentence spinner. So you're actually piecing together different pieces of sentences to say what you want to say. So word choice is very particular, and you need to be sort of careful about how you're responding to the different characters. That's another game that was at BitBash uh, 2019. Uh, so yeah, it's, hey, people, check out BitBash. And then your third game is a tabletop game, right? Yes, so um, we are publishing a tabletop game called Chroma. Our publisher is Ad Magic. They're really wonderful, and uh, they publish many other amazing games. So Chroma is a uh, it's a mixture between like a tabletop and an electronics game. So it's an abstract territory capture game where you're capturing territory by overlaying pieces of acrylic on a lightboard to create colors to capture territory. So it's very visual, very tactile, uh, very colorful, and like visually appealing. If people want to keep up to date on what you're up to and what StarCrossed is up to, where can they do that? Definitely. So you can find us at uh, playstarcross.com or at playstarcrossed on Twitter. Uh, for my personal work and links to my other projects, you can find me at, at Chesky on Twitter, which is C-E-S-C-H-I-I-I. And one final question for you. Uh, uh, so this is a question I ask uh, all guests because I feel like there's a shared bond around Pokemon. If there is one Pokemon that you could have as a pet, what Pokemon would that be? I think that's a fantastic question because it's not which one is your favorite, it's which one you would like as a pet. I think, like, I'm definitely a dog person, so I would definitely lean towards a Growlithe or, like, a Houndoom maybe would be really cool. Yeah, definitely a a dog-like Pokemon for me. Would you... Okay, so if you get your Growlithe and the Growlithe gets to, like, level 22 or or whatever, uh, would you cancel evolution? Like, would you prefer a small Growlithe or a big Arcanine? Because, like, there's some (laughs) serious considerations between the two. Now you're asking me if I like, like, little or big dogs, basically. Um, No, definitely, like, I would love it to evolve because then you can ride your dog, right? (laughs) It's like Arcanine is big enough, I can ride my dog. That would be really cool. (laughs) And you'd be riding that dog right to, like, Costco or Sam's Club to buy, like, 40 pounds of dog food. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay, that's another thing to consider, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good question, though. <laughs> yeah, we're huge Pokemon fans. Um, my sister and I grew up playing Pokemon on the Game Boy. Like, Pokemon Blue was one of my very first games. So, yeah, but you're right. Like, Pokemon is a force that unites us all. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so normally for this podcast, Taylor, I'm coming into the game, seeing it for the first time. Uh, this is a little different because, you know, I, I've had the chance to enjoy Monolith on my own on, on Steam. But now uh, you're showing off a DLC pack for the game. So it's Monolith Relics of the Past. And so just uh, for the listener, I'm here with Taylor Miller, who is a co-founder of Team D313. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, hope I'd answer a few questions for you today. Yeah, yeah. So I guess just... Uh, when you were done with the original build of Monolith, what was it you wanted to continue to explore with Relics of the Past? Uh, I mean, really, we just 
we have more ideas, we have more stuff we want to add to the game, we added it all. Actually, that's not true. We still have more stuff we want to add to the game. There is a second DLC planned coming, God knows, maybe 2024 at this rate. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, with DLC, you'll see it just, like, kind of sprinkled throughout, especially within, like, the rogue... You gotta help me out here. Is this a rogue-like game or a rogue-lights game? No one knows the answer to that question. <laughs> Either is fine. You'll just get different groups of people angry. Which one you say? <laughs> that sounds perfect. So we'll call it a rogue-like for my. Uh, <laughs> uh, so with that, that one will make more people angry, but okay. <laughs> Were you looking to sprinkle different like items and enemies throughout the game, or are there like secret sections that you can find as you play through? It's both. <laughs> Uh, the, the DLC adds, like, 70 new enemies, a bunch of new modifiers to the weapons you can already get, a bunch of regular new pickups and stuff, like, there's new, like, kinds of health pickup, new kinds of ammo pickup, just everything has changed and been reworked from the ground up. In addition to that, the DLC adds two new floors, as well as a new looping system where you can proceed through the game infinitely, and the game gets harder every time you loop. Similar to, inspired by mechanics and shmups. And I think Binding of Isaac does something similar. Although theirs is a, like, you keep going up one loop. Ours actually, each time you reach a loop, you unlock it permanently. And it's just this ongoing, you want the game to be harder? Make the game as hard as you want, man. <laughs> when it comes to discovery for Monolith at this point, so, I mean, the game has been out uh, for a little while now. How do you uh, try and market DLC to draw in new players. I mean, we came here. Uh, sorry for that. Marketing's really hard, man. Like, we... The one thing I tried to do, and I don't know how much word it got out, but it was a lot of fun, was uh, before the DLC launched, I picked a few streamers who already liked the game, and I gave them the DLC early, and I went on the stream with them. I was in the voice call with them for, the, for their first experience with the DLC. And everyone in chat, everyone watching the stream, it would have also been their first experience with the DLC, aside from teasers. What are the chances that there is a plushie of the ship holding a cup of coffee? I would love that, but I'll say low. <laughs> we did have Monolith merch made. I'm even wearing my Monolith t-shirt right now. Uh, but I don't know how successful it was, really. The store has since closed. Not the store itself, but the Monolith merch has closed. Is that through the Yeti? That was through Yeti. Yeah. Uh, they're still selling the vinyl, but that's it. And everything else is gone. I am hoping to get them to make more, but no promises. And then uh, what are the chances of a Switch port? Uh, we have we have asked Nintendo, and that's all I can really say about it. Hypothetically, if you were able to launch the game on the Switch, would you aim to get it uh, compatible with the Flip Grip? Are you familiar with that product? Yes. And yes. <laughs> Mode going. I, well, yes, we, we would add that 100%. There would be a mode. And then, just uh, one final question. Uh, I always like to ask a question about Pokemon. If there was one Pokemon that you could eat, what would it be? Pass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well. Oh, okay. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Thank you so much for your time. I like Pokemon. <laughs> right. uh, which is why I wouldn't want to eat any of them. Would you prefer to eat the byproduct of a Pokemon if it could be humanely gathered? Like, uh, imagine, like, you get, could it get a leaf off the plants of a Bulbasaur and it wouldn't mm. hurt the Bulbasaur? Probably not, because Bulbasaur is poison. That's true. That's, <laughs> okay, that's, that's good. Be, be aware of the dual typing when you consume Pokemon. <laughs>
Uh, in that case, thank you so much for your time. If people want to get updates on Monolith, where can they get them? That's probably the best way to do it. Just find us on Twitter at Team D13. Team underscore D13. That's it. Uh, we post stuff right there regularly, especially when development is ongoing. We're on a bit of a hiatus right now. But when we're working on stuff, you can expect to see teasers pretty frequently on our Twitter. And if you ever want to find it, if we, if we go to another convention, you'll definitely find out about it there. All right, awesome. Thank you. And that will bring this week's episode of So Many Bits to a close. Next week, we'll come back with seven more interviews and additional thoughts on the PAX East 2020 convention. Until then, if you want to reach me, I'm available by email at so many bits podcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, we're So Many Bits on there. Follow us on Twitter and Tumblr at So Many Bits. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Please rate and review or download from Simplecast, from Stitcher, or stream via Spotify. We play games, twitch.tv slash so many bits, Wednesday and Thursday nights, 8 p.m. Central Time. If you'd like to listen to other great nerdy podcasts, check out nerdalogs.com. That's where so many bits resides. And last but not least, thank you very much for listening. Have a great summer. Bye.